Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you for joining me for this 12th episode. I've realised that my first year anniversary has been and gone without me even noticing it. Therefore, thank you to all returning listeners who've supported me over the last 12 months, whether you've listened from the start or only recently discovered my curiosity cabinet. And welcome to all new listeners. I know there are many knitting and making related podcasts, so I really do appreciate you spending some time with me and letting me keep you company whilst you make or commute. For new listeners, I'm Meg and I'm based in London in the UK. In my podcast, I talk about my enjoyment of the act of making and the delight I find in working with natural materials, but I also acknowledge the sustainability dilemmas that go hand in hand with my interests. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Covenant, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs M, and that is with a hyphen between each word. I will link all this information and anything I mention here in the show notes, which are available on my website, Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet dot com or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? As many of you know, the Edinburgh Yarn Festival was held last month, so I will be sharing some impressions from this event. The festival was amazing but also pretty draining, so most of March involved recharging the batteries and resting. So instead of focusing on major projects, I allowed myself to play a bit, mostly with colour, so I'll share some of those making projects with you. I will also revisit an old giveaway and answer a listener's question, and if there is time, I'll share an inspiring gem. So I hope you're settled in and have a cup or a glass of something tasty, and let's begin. So, the Edinburgh Yarn Festival. In mid-May, knitters flocked to Edinburgh for a few days of wool fumes, workshops, and time with our tribe. I'm aware that me reeling off a detailed overview of my time at the festival and all the woolly chums and inspiring knitters I met can feel a bit like boring folk with my holiday snaps, and particularly so if they couldn't join due to circumstances or other commitments. Also, I was so drained after three days of headiness that despite scribbling notes at the end of each day, the event now feels like a warm, hazy dream. So, rather than give you a detailed description of my encounters, I thought I would share my impressions of this festival. In particular, how, on the one hand, it is very much a celebration of the fibre community rather than just a yarn festival, and on the other, the breadth and depth of the wool market in the UK, and to a lesser extent Europe, for hand knitters and crocheters. One of the reasons I keep going back to the Edinburgh Yarn Festival is that Joe and Mika, the event organisers, have from the start recognised that community is a big part of knitting and crocheting for many makers. Unlike most festivals or fair organisers, they have always allowed space for this community to meet and to be nurtured by their time together. Over the years, EYF has grown and this year the event was more extensive, both in terms of time and space. The workshops ran from Wednesday to Sunday. The marketplace was held over three rather than two days, with an additional micro showcase event on the Sunday, and the venue was extended by adding a sizeable marquee. Often when events grow, organisers squeeze more vendors into the expanded space to maximise returns. Although the organisers changed the ticket price structure, expanded the Cayley and hosted ticketed knit nights on site, as well as facilitating a couple off-site, the additional square footage was very much devoted to community. 
The space available to the actual podcast lounge had doubled in size, but the whole of the lunching area from previous years was rearranged into smaller, cosier tables that formed an overflow for the podcast lounge. And the bright, heated marquee was entirely devoted to us makers, a space where we could sit, knit, crochet, chat, drink and eat. As in previous years, Louise Scully of Knit British hosted the podcast lounge with her usual warmth and enthusiasm. She had made the place very inviting with an array of blankets on the growing number of sofas, including a vast crocheted blanket made in British breed wools in natural shades. She had also decorated the walls with sheepy woolly posters from the space's sponsor, Blacker Yarns, and with bunting made from mini jumpers that listeners had sent to help her celebrate the podcast's 100th episode. Rather than organise a series of informal talks that would have exhausted speakers' vocal cords and listeners' ears, this year she set up a touch-and-feel exploration station where wool enthusiasts could experience the properties of different breeds of wool. Once again, there was an army of chirpy volunteers who helped the event run smoothly, and everybody from the venue staff manning the cafes to the security staff seemed to be infected by the jolliness of the atmosphere. Everybody I had dealings with was helpful and efficient and very pleasant with it. I'm not sure how the longer duration of the festival worked out for the vendors who had to prepare an inventory and manage logistics for a three-day event, but for an introverted knitter like me, the longer event was definitely a plus. It meant that I didn't have to cram everything into a day and a half. I could take my time and enjoy the company of old friends and new acquaintances. This year was a little different for me as I was one of the invited podcasters. As I love hearing other people's stories, I really enjoyed having the opportunity to meet so many listeners, but I'll admit it was also a bit overwhelming. In many ways I was quite lucky because as an audio podcaster I enjoyed some anonymity. The upside of this was that there were more than just quick meet and greet moments, there was scope for more extensive conversation. I know this because a few people commented on Instagram that they had spotted me, but I was deep in conversation with somebody and they didn't want to interrupt us. That's very sweet, but next time please do say hi and join in the conversation. I would like to say a big thank you to everybody who came up to chat to me, who gave me a hug, checked I was okay, complimented me on the podcast, said they enjoyed the podcast but disagreed about XYZ because ABC. I particularly love these kind of conversations. My podcast is an opportunity for me to explore some of the issues I care about or struggle with and to share my thinking and start a conversation. I don't for one moment claim to have all the answers or even all the questions. What I enjoy is the shared exploration and it was so lovely to have a chance to do so face to face. I was also fascinated and touched to hear which topics resonate, how much interest there is in my nylon free sock experiment. I promise there'll be an update on that soon, not just on my current make, but also a stock take based on my first year of this slow boil experiment. I was very touched by the generosity and trust with which some of you shared your experiences of the highs and lows of making, and how making and body image interplay, or about making and thriving despite difficulties and limitations. I mentioned earlier that EYF now feels like a warm, hazy dream, and warmth is definitely the right word for my experience. Whether we were swapping knitting stories, having a discussion or mutual rant, bouncing ideas off one another, or just sitting quietly swapping details of the lovely wool we'd bought, I was very aware that I was amongst friends and that there was a lot of support for and goodwill towards each other. So Joe and Mika, 
Louise and Black Eons, thank you for creating such an amazing space for wool tribes to meet and share their enthusiasm for wool and its potential for creating community and change. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this event in a tiny way. But what about the wool? I won't be doing a parade of the wool I bought, as I prefer to talk about wool once I've used it so I can say something more useful about it. What I would say, though, is that once again we were absolutely spoiled for choice. Joe and Mika do a fabulous job at pulling together a marketplace that reflects diversity and depth in the hand-knitting wool sector. Sorry to any crocheters listening. When I talk about knitting, I mean crochet too, but it would become rather long-winded if I kept on saying both. There was a good array of independent dyers showcasing their yarns, and whilst, as many of you know, such yarn is not really my thing, I appreciate the skill that goes into them, and I know that lots of knitters enjoy their presence at the festival. From my perspective, what I really enjoyed was the presence of many different breeds and blends of more hearty wool, as well as several niche areas and encouraging approaches to wool production. I'm going to try to pull my impressions of these together into several themes, but there may be some overlap and repetition, so please bear with me. Once again, it was lovely to see a lot of what I would call more traditional wools at the festival. Hearty wools are great for warmth. One of my favourite breeds in this respect is Shetland, and it was very well represented. Jameson and Smith and Jamesons of Scotland were both there, as was Eurodale, the organic farm that produces Shetland wool, and JC Rennie. But there was also Shetland wool to be found on the Blacker Yarns and Garthnoff stalls, as well as some naturally dyed Shetland on Wollonflower's stall. In the past 12 months, there seems to have been a growing interest in stranded colour work and wools that lend themselves to this type of knitting. People like Kate Davies and Mary Wallen in the UK, as well as many Icelandic and Scandinavian designers, have been working with these techniques for years. And podcasters like Sarah of Fibertrek and Nicole of The Gentle Knitter have been waxing lyrical about such designs for years. However, I get the impression that these techniques and wools are reaching a new audience due to the efforts of people like Ellie, the podcaster and designer behind Skeindir Knits, and Jennifer Steinglass, a prolific yoke designer. In light of the growing interest in stranded colour work, it was no surprise to see wools like Rauma and Tuka wool represented, along with Midwinter Yarn's range of Scandinavian wool. Baram Yu, the Yorkshire wool producer, has also brought out a new colour work blend. I'm delighted with this trend. Although I'm not the most prolific colour work knitter, I do hope that these types of projects, and especially these types of wool, will be a gateway drug for more knitters to delve deeper into the wonderful array of non-superwash yarns. As many listeners will know, I like colour in small doses, but natural shades really get me excited. Once again, there was no shortage of these. Although the Wool Marketing Board still undervalues fleeces that aren't pristinely white and therefore highly dyeable, it is lovely to see a growing interest in dark, grey, brown, oatmeal, mild natural shades. Blacker Yarns, Garthenor and Uradel were all there with their soothing ranges of natural shades, but so were smaller producers like Uist Wool and Daughter of a Shepherd. I think this is a lovely example of how it's possible to create change when vocal advocates, people like Louise of Knit British, Isla, formerly of Brit Yarn, or Sarah of Fibertrek, wool producers with conviction, people like Sue of Blacker Yarns, or Dana McPhee of Uist Wool, or Rachel Atkinson of A Daughter of a Shepherd, and an engaged and interested community, i.e. us, converge. Natural dyers were also well represented at EYF this year 
with Paula of Moorview Yarn from Wales, Eula of Hey Mama Wolf based in Germany, and Jules of Wollenflower whose display of russet, ochres and deep olive greens I pretty much wanted to move into. I also had long chats with natural dyers Elke of Tulliver Yarns and Emma of Woolly Mammoth Fibre, both of whom were attending EYF as visitors. A few years ago, natural dyers were barely represented at wool festivals, but it's fascinating to see that dyers are now considering colour in different ways and choosing to base their business around different processes. Another theme that really made this resource-conscious knitter rejoice was the number of producers who are seeing value in wool that for too long has been regarded as waste. For example, Christine of Rauwerk was showing me the wool that she has produced from a neighbouring farmer's fleece. For years, the farmer had been using the fleece from his sheep as fertiliser as nobody was interested in it as wool. Now, as somebody who gardens, and particularly somebody who grows food, I have a lot of respect for a good source of a natural fertiliser. But dumping fleece on land because it has so little value as wool just does not make sense to me. It's fabulous to see Christine, a petite but spirited wool hero, take the fleece and turn it into wool. Not only is she realising a value for what had been seen as a waste product, she is working with a nearby mill and so investing in local jobs and the community. Daughter of the Shepherd's latest range, Ram Jam, is based on similar waste principles. After Rachel demonstrated, both to knitters and farmers, that there is a market for a dark walls, like that of her father's Hebridean flock, she was approached by other sheep farmers, asking if she could do anything with their clip. The result is a hearty blend of wool grown, scoured and spun in Yorkshire and available in four natural shades. Similarly, Jewels of Woolenflower recognises the value of waste products both in some of her dye baths but also in one of her new bases. Masgorfine is a blend that comes from three meat breeds whose wool is considered a waste product because it's not super soft or super white. And finally, I loved seeing and speaking to wool dyers who are helping to shape the sector. Although I prefer to avoid superwash wool, I recognise that these wools have their uses and that they have also provided many dyers with viable livelihoods, often one that is close to home or has working hours that suit the dyer's circumstances. What really cheers me though is hearing stories of dyers who push the boundaries, often once they've established themselves but occasionally also at the start of their business. I especially admire dyers who use their skills and reputation to partner with farms or mills to produce small batch yarns, yarns that make use of less familiar, less popular or less valued breeds. Dyers like Joy of the Knitting Goddess with her one farm yarn and nylon free sock blends, or Linda of Kettle Yarn Company with her Shetland Romney Ramble base, or her heartily luxurious Baskerville, a Gotland silk and Exmoor blend. But it's not just well-established dyers and wool producers who are starting to do this. I was talking to fellow visitor Emma of the Woolly Mammoth Fibres. She is only in the first year of trading as a natural dyer, but is already working with a mill to produce a nylon-free, 100% British wool sock yarn. As somebody who mulls over the environmental, ethical and economic aspects of sustainability a lot of time, the breadth and range of the ventures represented at EYF really inspired me. Whether it's creating value from waste, producing naturally dyed yarns whose subtle colours remind us of the precious nature of colour, or shaping the sector by showing there is value in small batches of interesting wool. 
Yes, it's harder to make the economics of small batch products made from local resources using local-ish supply chains work, but to my mind, part of a kinder way forward for the planet and all its inhabitants is to value and nurture local resources, be it animals, people, soil, skills, communities. Also, these efforts in the wool sector, like similar ventures in the food sector and even in community energy generation, can act as inspiration for other businesses and sectors that make up our economies and communities. If there is one regret I have about EYF, it was that I was not able to attend the Meet the Shepherdess event. I had already booked my return train journey before this event was announced, and unfortunately I couldn't change my ticket. The new addition to the festival was a low-key gathering to showcase smaller producers who took wool from fleece to skein, like Croft 29, Black Isle Yarn, Lifelong Yarn, the Berlin Company and so on, and who, due to the nature of their product, would not necessarily have the inventory for a three-day event. With lots of small, place-based producers, natural shades and hearty wools, this event would have been right up my street. But alas... This year, I'm making great efforts to focus on what I can enjoy rather than dwell on what I can't, so I'm going to soak up the memories of my EYF and the lovely additions to my wool pantry and postpone my exploration of these other talented wool producers for another time. Although I thoroughly enjoyed Edinburgh Yarn Festival and three days with woolly friends, it did take a toll on my health, so the past few weeks have been a time for gentleness and non-pressured play. Much of this playing has revolved around natural dyeing. I enjoy working with naturally dyed wool, but personally I prefer to spend time dyeing cotton and linen than skeins of wool, even though it's a more laborious process. It is possible to speed it up, but that involves using alum acetate. The downside from my perspective is that it produces vibrant colours rather than the murky, moody ones that I am drawn to. So despite the multiple steps, I generally stick to the traditional three-step method of soaking the fibre in a tannin bath and then following it with one or two potassium alum baths before moving on to the colour. I tend to let the fabric steep for at least 12 hours with regular stirring, so this process will never be fast. But as my days involve factoring in plenty of rest slots, the slow hands-off method actually really works for me. Last year, most of my experiments involved kutch as a tannin and madder for the colour, but this time round I tried a different combination. Traditional tannin baths usually involve oak galls or sumac, but I can't pick oak galls in our local park. It's a royal park and has a strict ban on foraging. Also, the only sumac tree in my area was brought down by an impressive lightning strike, so my source of local sumac has disappeared. But I do drink a fast amount of tea, So, for the past few months, I've been keeping spent tea leaves and drying them for a tannin bath. I brewed up several large saucepans of tea to get a strong tannin bath and left squares of fabric scavenged from an old duvet cover to steep for a good 24 hours each. After rinsing them, they went into my alum bath for a similar amount of time, followed by a rinse and another soak. Each time I added fabric to the alum bath, I would top it up by simply dissolving the alum in boiling water. I usually work with about 20% of the weight of the fabric. I also add about 5% soda crystals, also dissolved in boiling water. Apart from this, there is no other heat involved. Then I took about two or three months worth of yellow onion skins and simmered them up for nearly an hour. I removed the skins but kept them to cook up a second weaker dye bath. I know I should probably keep more detailed notes rather than my approximates based on storage bag size, but I'm not particularly obsessed about getting exactly repeatable colours. 
For me, the beauty lies in the subtle variants that combine so well with each other. Anyway, I've learnt from experience that when dyeing fabrics rather than yarn, it is useful to add some glauber salts to encourage an even take-up of colour. I still need to stir the fabric regularly, but it does mean better coverage and fewer streaks. The colours I achieved with these onion dye baths range from yellow ochre through brown ochre to raw sienna. Warm colours, intense colours and very, very autumnal. Based on this experiment, I can't wait to see what colours I might get if I use kutch for the tannin together with onion skins. My dyeing experiments have produced a good supply of dyed squares. Some have gone into a slow lap blanket project, but as I'm eager to test my dyed fabric for light and wash fastness, I wanted to make some practical items that I could press into regular action soon. As my napkins were looking very tatty, I decided to run up some serviettes from the dyed panels. After two afternoons of pressing, measuring, pinning and stitching, I have two sets of napkins. One made from madder and kutch dyed fabric, and a second one from the glorious onion skins. I particularly love this second set, not just for the earthy tones, but because they feel quite subversive. These days, napkins are often made of paper, used once and thrown away totally disposable. I love the idea of turning that perspective on its head and making durable napkins out of waste materials. Cutting fabric panels to equal squares for the napkins produced some offcuts. I cut these into strips which I then stitched together to make enough fabric for a pencil case. I lined and interfaced it with offcuts from other sewing projects so apart from the zip this was a mini project conjured up out of next to nothing, my favourite type. A couple of episodes ago I announced the winner of a copy of Carrie Westerman's of This Thing of Paper. As I have not heard from the original winner, I have decided to redraw using random.org and the book will now go to Wool I'll Be Damned, who is Alicia from Ceredigion in Wales. Alicia, if you could send me your address through Ravelry Mail, I will get the book off to you as soon as possible. A few weeks ago, I received a question from Bethy Forty, who is Becca from Glasgow. She wrote, Our online spinning group was chatting about this yesterday. She linked to a petition organised by the Story of Stuff for the introduction of legislation in California to combat microfiber plastic pollution. Becca went on to ask, As somebody who studies sustainability, do you find that petitions like this make effective change? Are there better ways to approach the problem? Just curious, as someone mentioned that people tend to give up when problems are complex and overwhelming. Although this is not related to any particular craft, the query definitely relates to materials, and more widely the sustainability of our wardrobes and even our homes, so I am more than happy to address the question of petitions as a way of affecting change. I recognise that there are some who don't like political topics to seep into podcasts, or look to podcasts for relaxation and escape. If that's you, that's perfectly fine. Feel free to skip the next 10 or so minutes. But as all of my making and many of my daily acts involve choices or even just an awareness about how to be a little more earth kind, animal kind, human kind, in many ways my podcast is political. Not party political, but political in the sense of being an engaged participant in shaping our world and society. So, are petitions an effective way to make change? 
I suppose the simplest answer is that it is rarely possible to draw a direct line between a petition and a change in legislation, company policy or industrial practice. That said, petitions don't exist in a vacuum and they can be a helpful part of the mix that creates an impetus for change. There are a few key things to bear in mind. The most important one is to check who's behind the petition you're going to put your name to. If you are happy to support it, don't just sign a petition and leave it at that. Rather, use it as an opportunity to engage others, be it friends or those who may have access to other routes of lobbying or persuading. The other is to get a feel for what other types of actions can influence change and if you are interested and able to get involved in some. Many online petitions allow you to share it on social media with your friends and family. Doing this is certainly useful as it helps create wider awareness about issues and may reach other acquaintances who are also moved to take a stand. Some petitions allow you to insert your own comment for the recipient. Even if you don't feel like an expert, try to write a line or two to show the recipient that you are not just on autopilot but really care about the issue. There are some online petition platforms that make it easy for you to copy the petition to your elected representative. If this facility is available, try to use it. And if it isn't, you can always email the link to your representative or tweet them and ask for their views on the topic or what they plan to do to further the issue. I know a lot of people don't like contacting a politician of an opposing party, but it's almost more important to engage with them than not. For one, in many countries, governments involve coalitions, so cross-party collaboration is a matter of fact. Also, most parties consist of a spectrum and different individuals will have different issues they care passionately about. And sometimes they may have no strong view one way or another. Some politicians will blow with the wind and if they think they can gain political advantage by jumping on a popular bandwagon, they will. These kind can actually be quite useful for activists as it can create a small opening for an issue to get some traction. Also, it's a good idea to not just email your elected representative. You could always copy a petition to the politician with responsibility for the particular issue, be it environmental, fair working conditions, health and safety, animal welfare, whatever. It doesn't just have to be the Secretary of State with the big portfolio. Although I am mostly familiar with the UK and EU political structures, I know that in many countries, legislation is shaped in cross-party working groups, with lower-ranking politicians doing a lot of the groundwork. So I would recommend finding out who these groups are, who chairs them, and copy any petitions you sign with a message to them. This involves a bit of research, but it's desktop research. So maybe once or twice a year, spend an evening digging around the website of your local or national parliament and build up a list of key players. Also, it's a good idea not to limit our engagement to politicians. Legislation is one part of the picture, but pressure on companies for their policies and industrial processes is also important. So if you can, let a company know that you feel strongly about an issue and ask them how they, as an industry leader, plan to address the issue. Engaging with companies can take various forms. You could just tweet the company, but I find it is better if you address an email or even a copy of the petition to a specific person. A lot of companies make it very difficult to find contact details, so I usually dig around in the press releases on the company's website, especially the ones on sustainability or corporate social responsibility topics, as these will usually have more specific contact information. 
I'll admit it's very easy to get jaded about CSR or sustainability departments in companies. Some companies do indeed use greenwashing or minimal environmental or ethical efforts to tick the corporate social responsibility box. But there are individuals in these departments, even in big, hard-nosed organisations like banks, that really grasp the issues and the urgency, not only from a human perspective, but also, importantly, in the context of the long-term risk profile of the business. So when we come across committed people like this, it makes sense to engage with them. What, my darling? What? You've got opinions too. Well, you would have, wouldn't you? You would have living with me. Sorry about that. Dante wanted to add his two pence worth. So yes, engaging with companies. There's another really useful way to engage with businesses on topics we care about, and that is to do so as a shareholder. Anybody who has a private pension, whether individually or through a company scheme, is a shareholder. So why not check what companies are represented in your pension portfolio and use the fact that you are a shareholder as an opportunity to reach out to them? Usually pensions are structured as portfolios of shares and it's the portfolio manager who attends the annual general shareholders meeting. But you can also buy as little as one share in your own right, which gives you a right to attend the AGM. Obviously there are practical restrictions such as time and place, but if you can, go along to the AGM and if there is an issue that you care about, feel free to ask a question. If you are interested in this type of activism and are based in the UK, I would recommend you check out Share Action UK. This organisation helps shareholder activists pinpoint the relevant decision maker and how best to formulate questions in a constructive manner to appeal to them. I discovered this organisation through the School of Gentle Protest podcasts, which were run by craftivist Sarah Corbett. Share Action UK is admittedly only UK-based, but if you're interested in this kind of thing, you could always reach out to them and see if they can recommend similar organisations in your own country. What have you got to lose? Although I feel passionately about sustainability issues, I'm not a particularly shouty activist. This is partly temperament and partly due to a career in negotiating, often with people I didn't particularly like. As such, the approach of Catherine Howarth of Share Action UK really chimes with me. It's always helpful to engage with people as people. Yes, we may have issues with the company, organisation, party they represent, but the individual is still a person. So, when raising issues and asking questions, make it clear that whilst you have issues with the organisation's policies or practices, you acknowledge their potential as people to care and to affect change. I mentioned earlier that petitions don't happen in a vacuum. Decision makers are subject to continuous lobbying by interested parties. These include environmental, social justice, animal welfare NGOs and think tanks. It's not unusual for such organisations to commission academic bodies to carry out a piece of research so that they can use objective data when engaging with civil servants, politicians or businessmen. Often such NGOs will use petitions to coincide with research being presented, so they don't only highlight the objective impacts or possibilities, but also that the public feel strongly about the issue. In recent years in the UK and certain other EU countries, 
Organisations concerned about the impact of neonicotinoid pesticides on bees and other pollinators have used well-timed petitions and academic research to effectively campaign for a ban on the industrial use of such pesticides. Likewise, many companies will be carrying out ongoing research, but a well-timed petition can nudge a company to bring forward an investment decision to make a positive change. A recent example in the UK saw one of the major tea brands commit to fast-tracking a move to plastic-free tea bags. Canny NGOs and organisations may also use petitions to coincide with consultation. So, by signing a petition, it may help them to point to popular concern about issues they are raising in their response to a consultation. Consultations are held by both public bodies and companies, and our involvement can extend beyond signing a petition. The consultation documents are publicly available, and anybody can respond. I know it can sound like a lot of work, and snoringly dull to digest and respond to consultations, but it's important to remember you probably don't need to start from scratch. If you want to get involved in this kind of action to help create change, follow organisations that work on the issues you care about. Join their mailing lists as they usually share their proposed consultation responses and often encourage others to make submissions too. And you certainly don't need to read the whole document. I read the executive summary and the sections on the issues I care about of both the consultation document and the proposed response. Then I write a short submission based on the key points that resonate with me. It's important to remember that it doesn't matter that we're not experts. Being concerned inquiring citizens makes us stakeholders. Also, it's totally fine to use everyday words. In fact, it's often better to paraphrase an NGO submission in our own words rather than submit a carbon copy. I'm very well aware that all of these suggestions involve time and effort. Even if we had all the time in the world, activism burnout is a very real thing. So whatever you feel called to do, do not try to do it all. Pick your battles. Pick a couple of issues per year, spend the occasional evening researching the key players, NGOs, companies, politicians, and when the opportunity arises, if circumstances allow it, start to flex your muscles as a stakeholder. It's also very important to seek emotional support. This might be face-to-face -face contact with local groups or exchanges on social media. The key is to be able to connect with others, share information, moan about how today you're just a bit despondent about the whole thing, and importantly, to celebrate any progress and wins. Building that support network can also involve reaching out to somebody who is championing a matter that you don't have time to focus on, to give them a virtual pat on the back or celebrate their success. If you have the chance to go along to an event organised by a think tank, NGO, all-party parliamentary group, interest group, on an issue you care about, I would encourage you to do so. These events usually involve a chance to network or mingle beforehand or afterwards. Although the word networking can strike terror into some of us, I increasingly view it as an opportunity to spend some time with people who get it. It provides me with an important shot of energy and reinvigoration, just as time with my wool tribe does. I hope all of this gives you some ideas on how you might use a petition or what else you might do to help create change if you're interested and able. This is certainly not an exhaustive answer, but as always with my podcast, hopefully it's a starting point for your own exploration and making. Yes, even making. Ultimately, all these kinds of action are part of civil society. 
and that doesn't just materialise. It is part of the fabric of society that is made up of lots of overlapping, intertwining actions by engaged individuals. I would like to finish on a less earnest note by sharing a new inspiring gem. Katie Green, aka Katie Greenbean on Instagram, has recently started a podcast, The Green Bean Podcast, available on YouTube. Some may know Katie as an illustrator who contributed to the Pom Pom Quarterly magazines. Others may know her as the author of the graphic novel Lighter Than My Shadow, and others still as one of the gentle, smiley members of the Blacker Yarns team at festivals. Katie has chosen a wonderful, slightly different approach to her podcast, and one that I very much enjoy. In her first two episodes, Katie shared some of her knitting, illustration and sewing projects. I like that she doesn't squeeze loads of projects into an episode, but rather picks two or three and focuses on them serenely. She also allows us to watch her make, as well as listen to her talk about making. I am always mesmerised by watching hands at work. I find it very meditative and calming, much like Katie's gently paced, mellow voice. Another aspect I enjoy about Katie's podcast is that she talks about the materials, tools, process and psychology involved in her projects, but in a very unassuming, practical way. She acknowledges the demons that can go with creative projects, but not in a way that gives them more oxygen than they deserve. She self-drafts sewing and knitting patterns, but doesn't go in for any grandstanding. She appreciates quality materials and tools, but doesn't view them as a be-all and end-all, or as a substitute for the act and the experience of making. As someone who is interested in the well-being and agency that comes from making, this podcast is a real delight. Well, that's all I have for you today. Thank you for indulging my memories of the Edinburgh Yarn Festival and letting me go off on a tangent about petitions. I look forward to catching up with you very soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy lots of pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be.